Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. All right. So this week, it's been a huge week of political news in Venezuela. So we thought that we would use this as an opportunity to deep dive into that topic. Absolutely. Jill, I know Venezuela is a topic you've been speaking about for some time. You wrote a great piece called Petronomicon as a nod to Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. And I know you've been following the situation closely. You're also working on some initiatives on the ground around research and other things. I don't want to steal any of your thunder or reveal anything (laughs) that you're working on. But um, I think this episode, I really am going to be looking to you since you've been spending a lot more time than I have on this issue. I think for me, the lens I sort of frame it through is generally what we've talked about before is um, whenever there are humanitarian crises, economic crises, I think there's a tendency in the crypto community particularly in the Bitcoin community, for people to react in interesting ways and to try to co-opt these situations as an opportunity to evangelize crypto assets or Bitcoin. And so I think we just want to dive into the details of the situation a bit more and just talk about some of the realities and some of the ways that cryptocurrencies can be helpful and some of the things that probably aren't so constructive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to kind of high-level frame the discussion – One thing that has struck me for a long time, I think it struck a lot of others in the space, is that cryptocurrency as a space, as a community, as an industry, loves to talk about Venezuela. This has been kind of an ongoing theme for the last three, five, six, seven, even years. Um, Mm. And it's usually in the context of like, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, it's not that useful to us living in the Western world where we have institutions and some level of trust. But in a place like Venezuela, that's where it can have real impact. And, you know, this to me often feels more like just a convenient soundbite that is easy to say on stage or in answering the question of what crypto, what is it good for, than an actual mission. So today, I'd love to dive in to what's actually going on there, kind of what the political situation is, how we got here, why Venezuela has been in the news for the last week. And then, Meltem, I'd love to kind of banter back and forth with you a bit about some of the themes that we've seen of how people have tried to use crypto in Venezuela and and in other places as well and what that might entail for the future. Yeah. Um, and then I think the the last idea we should talk about that you and I have chatted about, and I know I mentioned to you some of my work that I've done with Gotenna and trying to use a mesh in New York where I am, but I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between infrastructure and crypto and some of the things that are going on in Venezuela around mesh networking and infrastructure in particular. Absolutely. Yeah. You've, you've framed basically all of my thinking on that subject. So <laughs> definitely like want to like talk to each other regularly or something. I know. It's like we're friends or something. What? Um, Weird. <laughs> all right. So, so let's get right into it because that's a lot to cover here. 
So Venezuela's political situation, you may have noticed if you are on Twitter or ever turn on CNN or Fox News or Russia Today, that Venezuela has been all over the press the last week. The main reason why that is, is because the United States this past week formally recognized an opposition leader as president of Venezuela. Um, This opposition leader, his name is Guaido, Juan Guaido. He swore himself into power earlier this week in front of a crowd of probably several hundred thousand people in Caracas who are out in the streets kind of protesting. Um, and, And not only has the United States recognized him officially, but other countries as well. So this ranges from sort of other local countries like Colombia, Argentina, et cetera, were all very quick to recognize him officially. Uh, Canada also followed suit. Now, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where all of these other countries are recognizing someone who's just sworn himself into power when there is supposedly a democratically elected president in power. Um, In order to understand this, I want to go back a couple decades and start with Hugo Chavez, who is a socialist leader who came to power in 1999 uh, with the aim of turning things around in Venezuela. He wanted to implement lots of social programs. He branded himself as as very much a socialist. He was targeting the ultra poor. Um, He set out to nationalize a bunch of industries, and he also set out to root out corruption. Now, depending on your politics, all of this might sound totally fine, even good, um, or it might be totally reprehensible to you. Well, Mm. the fact is, is that how it played out was not very smooth sailing. Um, Mm. Chavez suffered a coup attempt. He managed to survive this. One big lesson out of this is that, you know, when you strike at the king, you must kill him. This is kind of a standard old Machiavellian phrase and turned out to be very true with Chavez because following this coup attempt in sort of the early mid 2000s, he started more and more to crack down on the democratic institutions of the country. Uh, Any signs of, yeah. I just want to pause here. I think what's happened there, um, we're seeing uh, some echoes of this in our world as well, right? The developed world. I think a lot of what we're seeing in the US, there is fundamental tension um, due to growing wealth inequality in particular, and due also to opportunity inequality. And so to me, what's been interesting is just seeing how that narrative plays out in different ways and in different places. What I think is also interesting here is there is this interesting context where so much of Latin America um, was occupied by European powers. Um, We've certainly seen the impact of that in the Middle East and Africa as, you know, the powers that be carved these places up into spheres of influence. But I don't think we can underestimate, um, you know, there was a long period of history where there were active efforts to undermine things that felt dangerous to Western ideas of how markets and economies should function. And um, I just, I find the parallels quite striking. It's like rewind, fast forward, a lot of these same narratives are just playing out in very different ways in different places in different times. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the most important things to think about here is, you know, how 
how Venezuela and its experience as a nation, the experience of its population, how that relates to other places, other regions, even to us, you know, at home in the United States or, or wherever we might be, even if it feels like a million miles away, you know, it is there there are parallels to draw there. And, you know, one of the big ones, as I was saying, is that Chavez, following this attempted coup, he cracked down heavily on uh, basically any signs of opposition. And this led to a heavy compromise of just sort of the the democratic institutions of freedom of speech, um, etc. Now, Chavez died in March of 2013. And Maduro, Nicolas Maduro, his right-hand man, succeeded him. Now, there were a few problems that occurred when Maduro, who is is presently uh, the president who, who kind of is claiming authority, claiming power over the country, when he came to power, he didn't have nearly the charisma or popularity of Chavez. Um, his coming to power also coincided with a massive downturn in oil prices. You know, oil mm-hmm. in 2013, 2014. Meltem, I know you know this. You were an oil I trader. I left the industry. That's when... Things really started getting ugly, um, that, and that's when I made my run for the exit. <laughs> yeah, smart woman, smart woman. I got into short Bitcoin. Oil, <laughs> short oil on Bitcoin. Um, Venezuela didn't have that option, at least at least at the time. Uh, Venezuela sits on some of the largest oil reserves in the world, and that was how Chavez had been financing a lot of his social programs that he had been using to curry favor with the ultra poor, with the rural populations to get the vote. Mm-hmm. Now, Maduro suddenly ran out of money on this front. Again, oil prices went from being $100 a barrel plus uh, to below $40, $30 a barrel. And this persisted for many years. This was not a good situation, right? Um, Maduro started to lead with kind of an even greater iron fist than Chavez did, cracking down even further on any signs of opposition, started adopting what many people call kind of the Cuban playbook of, Mm. of this sort of combination of kind of authoritarian repression, also, you know, socialism. Um, And all of this has led to massive monetary mismanagement and also a humanitarian crisis. Mm. So the monetary mismanagement side of it has played out in the form of hyperinflation. Um, Hyperinflation, for those of you following along at home, is actually extremely rare for a country to experience. There are only a handful of instances of it in the last a uh, hundred years. Venezuela, Zimbabwe was the next most recent one. Um, Venezuela has experienced over a million percent inflation over the last year, which you just think about what that means for a second. It's like your money is just melting as soon as it gets into your hands. It's like so an wait, ice cream. Yeah. But can we conceptualize what that even, what that even means? I can't. Yeah. I, can yeah, you? yeah. I mean, it's, it's very hard to think about it. And uh, it's very hard to to try to imagine, you know, the, the stories that I've heard from the people on the ground there mostly involve, you know, oh, you know, I was working in in my parents' shop and it was my job to basically run around and continuously just update all of the prices on the produce and the food and, and the other goods and items because you just couldn't keep up with it. You just can't keep up with it. Um, you know, another another version of conceptualizing this is I had one woman tell me who is working a great job as kind of a lawyer, journalist, um, professional industry. 
she fortunately had access to an outside bank account outside of the Venezuelan system. But she was telling Mm -hmm. me that if she looked at her savings over the last, I think it was like five or 10 years, and if she had just saved in bolivars, and again, she was making good money in dollar terms every day. But if she had just saved in bolivars, she would be left with something like 30 cents total. So again, your money is just disappearing before you can even think about using it. I think so that's, that's important. important. Yeah. But I think what's important to understand here is the reason spirals like this happen. And again, an analogy I can conceptualize here. I think about what Germany went through, right? Um, where people, you know, there are images of people in 1930s Germany with wheelbarrows filled with money going to buy bread. And this, again, I don't want to get too into, you know, the, the aspects of monetary policy. But to me, this is one of the fundamental reasons that the philosophy of Bitcoin is so critical here. Absolutely. I mean, this to me is is basically the reason why I got into Bitcoin. The reason why it first fascinated me is because it's this fundamentally deflationary asset. And not only with Bitcoin, with, you know, you could say with several other cryptocurrencies as well, mm-hmm. you have the case where even if it's not deflationary, at a minimum, you have the inflation rate baked into the code. Like it's predictable what it's going to be. It's impossible for someone to just turn on a switch and say, all right, we're going to start printing money to fund our treasury so that, you know, in the case of Maduro and Chavez, yeah. they can. Let's yeah, be on. fair. There are some crypto dictatorships, and this is where the governance conversation becomes important. Exactly. A lot of people are now beginning to realize some of the protocols they invested in or things they signed up for, while the ideologies that were espoused when people were investing in these things, the way these things have been implemented, it's not really so decentralized in terms of who gets to make decisions. But I don't want to derail the the Venezuela narrative. No, but it's I good. Talk it's by good. You know, I remember, I think it was, it was an economics class, maybe my sophomore year of university, just looking at these photos of um, what happened to Germany and how it impacted people's day-to-day lives. And it's really important to understand to me, and I've seen this in Turkey, where the lira has been another currency that's just really struggled in a lot of different ways across a lot of different leaderships um, or, or, you know, regimes that have been in place there. But uh, what's so interesting to me was making that connection between monetary policy, um, the economic conditions that people are living in, and how it leads to social movements and political movements that can have tremendous destabilizing effects on countries, on populations. I mean, we are talking about a country here where people are living in a state where they have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. They don't know if there's going to be electricity. They don't know if there's going to be running water. I was reading some coverage from journalists who are on the ground there who are speaking to people who are trying to go to the hospital. They're not sure what medications they're going to get because the hospitals will use whatever they have. I mean, it's very difficult, I think, for people to conceptualize that type of state of existence. I, I just... It's completely foreign to me to even think about that. And so I'm I'm very curious to to hear your take on where you think this leads us. 
A hundred percent. And so this this basically brings us up to kind of the present moment, right? So Maduro and and his cronies have been printing money in order to fund the social programs that they've promised people. Um, corruption is rampant now in the government. There was an election held last year and Maduro was, quote unquote, reelected. But, you know, everyone, all experts who've looked at this, all in analysts, et cetera, have said that this looks like a highly fraudulent election. Um, now, meanwhile, this gentleman who I've mentioned previously, this young opposition candidate, Juan Guaido, was elected to be head of the National Assembly, um, which is basically the final remaining democratic institution in Venezuela. So this is the gentleman, Guaido, who swore himself in as president earlier this week, um, who the United States and others have swiftly followed by by recognizing him formally as president. And this has led up to a bit of a powder keg situation now in Venezuela, um, wherein you basically have two leaders who are both claiming legitimacy and legitimate power. Uh, it's not totally clear yet who the military is backing, although it appears that they are going to remain faithful to Maduro. That's, that's a key part of this. Um, it leaves... You know, for example, the United States ambassadors and diplomats in a very awkward situation where Maduro, the sort of old incumbent president, uh, has ordered them all to leave the country. But, you know, it's a little awkward for the United States to comply with that because that, again, legitimizes him. Um, and so it's, it's this very complex, fast moving situation. Uh, there are mass protests happening in Venezuela for the first time in you know, about five years since 2013, 2014 kind of time frame, people are feeling kind of a sense of hope again, feeling galvanized. Um, and so, you know, we'll we'll see where we go next and we'll see what role technology in general, but, but also I would say crypto specifically plays in this. You know, I think that it's interesting to make some comparisons here. Um, they're imperfect comparisons perhaps, but you know, Meltem, you mentioned Turkey as an example. I know IPFS, another decentralized technology, has been used there to access Wikipedia, uh, which yep. is strongly government censored. You know, if you look at the Arab Spring, the way that technology was used there between Twitter and encrypted apps and so on and so forth to be able to organize, but it would be. Let's, yeah. let's take one step back. So, so now that we fully understand the Venezuela the history of what's happened in Venezuela, how we got to the moment we are today. Let's take a brief detour. Um, talk to me a little bit more. I know you've done some research and you're working on initiatives to do a lot more research around this topic, but we see this on on Twitter. I follow Bitcoin Venezuela. Elena Geralt came and gave, gave a great talk at Crypto Springs, um, of which she's observed on the ground, the organization she's been working with in Venezuela. There are a lot of people who share, you know, being Venezuelan or having strong ties Venezuela, as well as being part of the crypto community. And so we hear a lot about um, people using Bitcoin. We see transaction volume on local Bitcoins has been steadily increasing. So talk to me a little bit more about who are the types of people in Venezuela who are using Bitcoin? Um, how are they accessing it? At what, how, does, what, how does that work? Yeah, gr yeah, great. Let's let's. They're not ACHing. Like they're not sending money from their bank account to a Coinbase equivalent. <laughs> I don't yeah, that's no, that. no. So I mean, exactly. One of the big hurdles for people in Venezuela is one: the government's policies 
strongly regulate uh, the movement of capital. Uh, crazy capital controls in place. You can't get money out of the country. It is illegal to buy dollars. It's illegal to even publish the dollar to Bolivar rate. So one actually interesting way that people are using Bitcoin is the local Bitcoin's API will publish at what rate Bitcoins are sold for Bolivars because local Bitcoins is used in Venezuela. And then as long as people know the Bitcoin dollar rate, they can figure out the implied Bolivar dollar rate and they can figure out what their income, what their savings, whatever it is, is actually worth, which sounds insane, right? That sounds like such a fundamental problem that you wouldn't even know the exchange rate of your own currency. But the government has censored any website that has tried to publish this internally within the country. Let's go back a step. So I'm I'm in Venezuela. I want to buy Bitcoin. What do I do? I open a browser and I go to localbitcoins.com. Yep, you can go on use local bitcoins. Um, so most people, there's this kind of myth out there that like local bitcoins in Venezuela, it's all just sort of people sitting sketchily in coffee shops and hoping that the government doesn't catch them. It's actually almost all online that transactions take place. So I'm in Venezuela. I have a bank account with, say, Mercantile, which is a local bank. I see that there's a local bitcoins broker online who's posted some price, some Bitcoins to Bolivar's rate. Uh, He also has a bank account with Mercantile or maybe it's with Citi or whoever. And we can then execute that just via the local Bitcoins exchange. So bank to bank, and then he'll send me Bitcoin to my Bitcoin wallet. So we see we see some people using local bitcoins internally certainly in order to you know have have some semblance of savings that's not in their melting currency. We also mm-hmm. see people using local bitcoins for remittances. Um so the Venezuelan population 3 million people out of 30 million, so 10% of the country has left in the last just couple years alone due to the crisis right. there. So there are a lot of people abroad trying to send money home. That's mm-hmm. very hard to do, very expensive to do uh, via any kind of normal remittances app. So people use local Bitcoins and similar to to do that. So that's that's one example of how people can and and are using it there. How is anyone? So I remember um, when there was all of this news around China cracking down on Bitcoin mining and um, power getting more expensive in other places. There was some talk of mining activity moving to Venezuela. I've seen some posts on Twitter and on Reddit. So, you know, not any official sources, but I've seen people talk about mining in Venezuela. Um, are people also mining new Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in the country itself? Yeah. So mining is huge there. It always has been. You know, I remember when I was doing research on this back in 2015, even then uh, mining in Venezuela, and this was before the crisis got like really bad there. Even then mining in Venezuela was way disproportionate to what you would expect just given like sort of internet penetration and uh, sort of level of crypto community there, level of crypto awareness. Um, and the reason for that is, again, it's a socialized country. Uh, the the oil industry is nationalized. So oil prices are insanely subsidized. It is so cheap 
to buy oil. And this, just as kind of an aside anecdote on this, you'll have people fill up their cars, their gas tanks with oil in Venezuela, drive across the border into Colombia, siphon the gas out of their gas tank and sell it in Colombia for Colombian pesos because it's so cheap. It's just like a free arbitrage opportunity. And you can kind of think of mining in Venezuela like this as well, just this incredible arbitrage opportunity where oil is cheap, power is cheap. Oh, hey, guess what? I I mean, if you have access to ASICs, um, then you can mine Bitcoin. Otherwise, any currency that that is Mm -hmm. GPU- compatible, then you know you can you can mine that way. So people are doing this as a source of income. Now here's the catch before you hop back in here is the government the government is not officially like against cryptocurrency. Like they haven't come out with any sort of public facing. Well they policies. created their own cryptocurrency, which we haven't t- touched. We're gonna on dive deep into the petro absolutely but so that's part of the reason actually that the government it would be very awkward for them to come out and be like no you know crypto is no crypto right when they have their own coin exactly Um, but so so for for that reason let me just finish this thought is the government though you'll get these instances of government officials coming around and rounding up mining equipment, even punishing people who are doing crypto mining, because they know, practically speaking, like this is in a way a form of opposition against the government's currency, against the government. They also know that if they round up the mining equipment, they can then go and run it themselves. So you get these really messed up dynamics where we love to think like, oh yeah, crypto in Venezuela, people are mining, like power to the people. And it's like, actually, no, power to the socialist authoritarian dictatorship who's who's also mining this, who's rounding up the equipment and using it themselves. Right. Um, so we've, we've talked about how people go about buying Bitcoin. We talked a little bit about um, the mining side. Let's talk a little bit. So I remember um, working with exchanges in Latin America, and I'm not going to name any exchanges, um, but there are some exchanges in Latin America who tried to extend their services into Venezuela. Now, granted, this was 2015, 2016, early 2017. I don't know what's happened since. um, But to me, it's been interesting um, just to see a lot of what's happening seems very informal. But are there actual companies? I mean, I've heard of some companies that are offering products and services, actual applications around crypto, particularly Bitcoin in Venezuela. Are there any official exchanges? Are there other exchanges um, that are offering services to customers in Venezuela? Do do you know? Yeah. So so there are uh, quite a few, actually. Um, Local Bitcoins, I mentioned already, uh, they, you know, they're a little bit different because they're heavily decentralized. Um, so they, though, have a fairly substantial presence in Venezuela. Another company that that also has pretty high penetration rate in Venezuela is a company called RTM. Um, they are doing incredible work there. They, they leverage crypto in their app, but they are centralized. They also don't exclusively rely on crypto. Uh, like their APIs also work with um, PayPal and, you know, basically other payments applications that, that you might be able to think of. Um, but they also do support Bitcoin, Zcash, 
uh, a handful of others. And what they do is they basically provide payment rails for people so that they can, again, diversify their money out of like their local Venezuelan bank account into yeah. other forms. RTM facilitates uh, the movement and transfer of, of money across these applications and across these bank accounts. Um, so they've done a lot of amazing work in Venezuela. They handle a decent number of employees and kind of agents who act as, as like cashiers for this system right. uh, who work even well, within, um, within Venezuela. That's what's been so interesting to me. Yeah. So while it's very different environment, um, Philippines, very um, cash centered society. There's a lot of people who remit money back to the Philippines from all over Southeast Asia. So there's this great company, um, Coins.ph. Um, Digital Currency Group was an investor. So I got to know uh, the team there, worked with them for the three years I was at DCG. They recently were acquired by Gojek, um, which is a large company in, in the Philippines. But what was really cool about their model is um, it was similar in a way where they had a partnership with 11,000 different retail locations through bodegas and corner stores. And so what to me has been really interesting to see is really this idea that um, it doesn't even need to be about Bitcoin to start with, but really one of the great tools to start the flywheel and to get more people using wallets for digital currencies and holding digital currencies while maybe not being aware that they're doing so um, is to enable people to take their cash, turn it into digital cash or some sort of digital savings account. I think what Abra is doing here is actually really interesting as well, where when you mm -hmm. put cash into the Abra app, um, you are not just holding Bitcoin, you can diversify into a number of different assets. They recently created a tokenized version of an index of cryptocurrencies partnering mm -hmm. with Hold 10. Um, and so to me, this is the start of the creation of more money transfer oriented services that are enabling people to buy. And BTCC, um, the Chinese Bitcoin mining company that had a mining pool, they also had a payments app. They have this app called Mobi, where what you can actually do, which I think is really cool, when you have Bitcoin or um, US dollars in your wallet, when you go to a different country, you can change between currencies. And all they're doing on the back end is they're buying exposure through either hedge. I think the way Aber does, it's really amazing. They actually have a smart a Bitcoin smart contract, which is really cool. Um, but you're basically getting synthetic exposure to other assets and you're effectively able to move in and out of different currencies. And what I really see starting to happen here and why, again, to me, the Coins PH acquisition was so interesting last week. If we think about economies and markets where there isn't robust financial infrastructure, so whether that's, you know, a Philippines or in this case, you know, Venezuela, where it's not necessarily that the financial infrastructure isn't there, but what people want, they're not able to get through the infrastructure they have because people are being forced to use the Petro, which we'll get into. To me, there's this really interesting use case that actually the cryptocurrency aspect is not the defining feature. It's the, and it's the critical tool that enables the use case to be possible. But this idea that you now can take physical cash, whether it's dollars that you have, whether it's, you know, Colombian pesos that you have, whatever the asset is, turning it into a digital asset and then being able to diversify through synthetic exposure positions that are created and collateralized with the underlying Bitcoin, that, that to me is actually really 
fascinating. Um, and, and that's where I start to, you know, what I do in my roles, really look at all these different things that are happening with not only cryptocurrency, but with analogous technologies in different parts of the world. And I do see this new narrative starting to develop, whether it's Bepesa in Africa, who's really just using crypto as a payment rail to enable people to move money more efficiently across all these different mobile money networks in Africa, whether it's a coins PH, whether it's a company, there are a number of companies springing up in the Middle East that are enabling Filipino workers and other foreign workers to remit money easily using digital currencies, the back end. Do you see in Venezuela, the appetite being for Bitcoin because people want Bitcoin as a deflationary sound money asset? Or is the demand there because Bitcoin is the best alternative to get out of the Bolivar? Yeah. So, okay, there's there's a lot to unpack here around this. And I'm really glad that you mentioned Abra and I'm really glad that you mentioned BitPesa because they are the two projects that I would say, you know, going back years now, going back like five years, really forged the path for Thinking about these use cases, thinking about the mobile money and remittances use cases and emerging markets around crypto, I want to I want to give a shout out to just a couple of other projects that are kind of following in those footsteps in Venezuela. One of them is Crypto Conserje, uh, which is doing a lot of work in the border cities between Venezuela and Colombia, and they're running all kinds of really cool experiments. Uh, they're running an experiment in which they're basically handing out paper wallets to people and then providing merchants with tablets just to teach them like, okay, here's the QR code. If you go to this merchant who has this tablet and this app downloaded, like they'll be able to receive this as money. This is, of course, one-time use, um, but just kind of getting people acclimated and educated around that. And then the other person who, if you want to learn more about what's going on with Bitcoin in Venezuela, follow him. It's at BTCVEN, BTCVEN, Randy Brito, who does incredible, incredible work. He takes in donations. He uses those donations to liquidate them into fiat and to literally feed people, like have people set up like soup kitchens and food trucks selling Venezuelan arepas, um, but using cryptocurrency and using cryptocurrency donations. So that's all pretty amazing stuff. The other use case that people are are kind of exploring as, as Venezuelan people to diversify into crypto and get out of their own failing currency, besides the mobile money thing, is the gig economy online. So there are a bunch of gig sites that Venezuelans are using to earn dollars or to earn earn Bitcoin. And this is everything from kind of mechanical Turk style things to just like simple like pay to click sites. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. I, I don't want to overstate it though. Like you know, we we have these conversations and it makes it sound like, oh, this is amazing. The crypto revolution is alive and well in Venezuela. That is not the case. Like this is this is sort of the odd person here and there who's educated, who has access to, um, you know, good Internet and has had access to education and so on in the past. Um, this is not yet widespread, but that's that's part of my mission. I'm I'm uh, a founder of an initiative called the Open Money Initiative that's working on doing this kind of research. We'll be announcing much more in the next week or two um, about how we can make this all actually widespread and actually useful and usable 
in Venezuela and in places like it. I, I love that. And I think that's what's so great about so many of these crypto business models that we're seeing emerge. We've talked about some of the tensions inherent in crypto business models. Can we really create business models that aren't constructed around traditional finance concepts and the existing business models we have in the world of financial applications we use every day today? What I think is great about this and what I love seeing in this community is that all of these uh, businesses that are being being developed in various parts of the world can benefit from watching one another, learning from one another, copying aspects of other firms' business models that make sense, swapping out components that need to be adjusted to account for, accommodate for the local market. Um, in some cases, I know Avra, for example, you know, changed some things about how their back end works because of liquidity related to certain assets. And so to me, it's just really wonderful to see an ecosystem where within, you know, six months, 12 months, someone can go from having just an idea to having a fully built product that people can use. And that's where some of what's happening with the Lightning Network, which I know is not the topic of our conversation today, but I do think it's really critical. What I think uh, sometimes people from outside the crypto community, and even sometimes myself, what I fail to realize until I take a step back because I'm living it in real time, is just how quickly this diffusion of ideas happens and how amazingly collaborative this community is. I think there are very few ecosystems I've seen in the startup space where you have so much diffusion of ideas, business models, and a lot of collaboration. I find most people, when I reach out to them, they're very willing to have a conversation with me about how they've architected their backend, how they constructed various parts of their platform, what they like, what they think is good about it, what the cons are, what they do differently. That to me is some of the magic of what's being built here. Maybe that's me being cheesy and <laughs> sentimental, but I think it's really magical. It's this is this is one of the most positive episodes I think we've recorded so far, and certainly the most positive and and you know bullish on kind of the use cases. I think I've heard you in a while. Really so. Real that helps real people. Exactly. Um, I think that you know instead of people sitting in rooms. I just came back from Davos. So I also feel like I'm a little bit shell-shocked. Um, and every year that's the experience I have when I come back is like, what? Where was I? I is, um, you know, we talk about all these really esoteric, ridiculous use cases. But when you're able to really see a case where people who are experiencing something that is just so outside of the norm and yep. so... It's so terrible to be able to see them use this technology that we talk about that doesn't sometimes feel real to us, um, to see them use it in ways that actually make a really material impact in their lives is, I think that's really what it's all about. That's why so many of us are so excited about Bitcoin and digital currencies and some of what's being built in this Exactly. Space. This is what it's all about, folks. It's not about how can you use a blockchain to, you know, put the plastic that we're collecting out of the ocean and tokenize it and track it. Like, it's all well and good. If you want to try that, fine. But like, this is what it's about, is an alternative monetary system that is free, that is open, that you do not need permission from your bank or from your government to use, that is censorship resistant. This is what but we're here for. But let's take one step back. So in reality, right now, what percentage of Venezuelans do you think have exposure to Bitcoin? 
one percent very low very low right it's very very low like probably probably a fraction of a percent okay so fraction of a percent so here's my fundamental question and i think this is one of the really interesting thought experiments that keeps me awake at night so say that we want to get to one percent or five percent in a crazy imaginary future ten percent of just people in Venezuela using Bitcoin. What's the population of Venezuela? Do you know roughly? It's about 30 million. Uh, now it's probably okay. about like 27, 28 million because so many have left. So we're talking about, you know, anywhere from three to 15 million people now, or even 30 million people now using Bitcoin. Um, and so do you think is what we have today number one, going to be able to scale to that level. And I think there's some really fundamental challenges there with liquidity and the way products are constructed and the way that um, exchanges and global liquidity really works. And then I think number two is once it gets to that size and scale, how is the government going to react? If you're living in a regime where really tight control of monetary policy is very paramount to maintaining power and control. So Venezuela, other states that, again, I will not mention where monetary policy and capital controls are very important. Once you get to that point, right now, this is small. They're not worried about it. But once you get to 1%, 5%, 10%, that starts to create real existential threats for existing powers that be. And these people have tanks and they have guns, and they have armies. So what does that mean for the future of Bitcoin? A hundred percent. So I, I want to break this down into into two parts. I I first want to address like, you know, what does it take to get people onboarded? Mm-hmm. And there are obviously a million answers to this question, ranging from the deeply technical to thoughts around products and UX and design and so on. But one thing that I want to touch on that has been a huge discovery to me through the work that I've been doing with the Open Money Initiative um, is is something that doesn't really fall into any of those categories, actually, which is a much more deeply cultural issue around trust and around how people think about their money and their funds. Mm -hmm. And the insight here is that a lot of this is about like who is the human that you're interacting with? Who is the human face of it? Who is the, whether it's like a customer support person or a local cashier or agent, who you're interacting with, who you're trusting with your money. And it's very difficult to try to explain to people like, oh no, it's decentralized. Like you're not trusting anyone. Like that's the whole point. Like they still want to know, well, like you know, who built the application? Like, who are you? Why are you educating me about this? Like, what's in it for you? You know, people are used to thinking about money in a certain way that is issued by someone, that is custodied by someone, that demands a lot of trust. And breaking them out of that norm is very difficult. And and in a lot of cases, when we're talking about centralized apps, even if they're crypto-based or even if they're decentralized applications but relying on centralized infrastructure, it's disingenuous to pretend that you're not still trusting someone. So how to communicate these things and how to engender trust in people, whether it's in a trust-minimized system or in a centralized app, is a very difficult, very human problem that we can't ignore in all of this. So that's going to be my quick answer on that. I want to switch gears here to the second half of your question, though, around the government. And 
first, I want to touch a bit upon how the government has used cryptocurrency itself. So I know, Meltem, earlier, you brought up the Petro. I know you followed along with that saga as well. Yes, I had I had a lot of thoughts and feelings about um, the Petro. And in particular, to me, you know, the interesting questions that emerged were really about um, when and again, um, I think people like to sit in rooms and pontificate. And there are a lot of great ideas you can come up with when it comes to how and where cryptocurrencies and digitization of money and assets um, could transform the way our world works. But I think when those ideas meet reality, execution, implementation, the world um, very quickly <laughs> starts to uh, a change. And there are some fundamental limitations in particular because, and we've covered this in one of our prior co- podcasts, we don't live in a world where anything and everything is possible. We live in a world that is defined by political competition, economic competition, by all sorts of rules and laws that are intended to keep countries in check. Um, You know, America has been a hegemon for a very long time and has, you know, exerted its military power and its economic power. We see the, you know, other countries forming treaties, alliances to do so. Some of the situation Venezuela is in, you know, a lot of the situation, frankly, and Iran as well, you know, two countries that are oil rich but cash poor are a result of policies created by the rest of the world to attempt to starve these regimes of of resources. And so um, I think the Petro just uh, really helped illustrate in so many ways all of the things that can go wrong when you take an idea that sounds good at surface level, when you actually implement it and think about what you're doing, very quickly becomes very dark and very dystopian and disturbing. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, just as a little bit of background for those who haven't been following this as closely, the Venezuelan government about a year ago, right around now, uh, announced that it would be conducting its own ICO in the form of this coin that they called the Petro. Now, details of it have been extremely sketchy. First, they said that they were building it on Ethereum. Then they said they were building it on NEM. It's not totally clear like what they even ended up building it on because the the contracts that exist on NEM right. seem to be kind of half built and and yeah, don't have that much money there was, contributing to it. Um, they wanted to build it on Ethereum. And again, this is great example. They wanted to build it on Ethereum, the original quote unquote white paper. And I just cringe to call it that. But the original sort of paper that got written up talked about Ethereum. And then what people started to realize is if people are using Ethereum to create digitized assets that are going to be used by a regime that is subject to sanctions, what you're going to do is create blacklisted coins or blacklisted assets that have touched this regime in some way, shape, or form, and you're going to remove assets from circulation. This has been one of my biggest issues with Bitcoin and companies that are providing network monitoring services and um, quote-unquote compliance tools. You know your customer is fine, but KYCCCCC all the way through to you know the block in which that Bitcoin was mined is actually really terrible because you start to create a system where you have clean coins and quote unquote dirty or black market coins, which is just horrible to see. I mean, most dollar bills at some point have touched cocaine. 
that the statistics like 80% or something. I don't know if that's real. Maybe it's a myth. Um, but just your dollars, just your dollars. <laughs> no, no, I, no. Um, I can red, red wine. We can cut that out. Let's cut that out. Let's cut that out. That's a good call. Um, but I think so. Like, let's cut out the whole dollars touching cocaine. Um, eight, so eighty percent of you got US, that, Michael. Cut that out. Eighty <laughs> percent of U.S. dollars, according to whether it's popular folklore or whatever it is, have touched, let's say, illicit substances. Um, whether that's true or not, we saw last week with the Donskin Deutsche Bank money laundering scandal, two hundred thirty billion dollars of money were laundered through the Estonian um, branch of Danske Bank through Deutsche Bank. Like the amounts are staggering. The issue is with these um, public ledgers, these public chains where we can trace transactions, there's a lot of transparency. It starts to create a system where all assets are not equal. All assets are not fungible. That's very scary. And so the switch to NEM, I think, to a large part was prompted by people in the Ethereum community and people just generally realizing like, oh, this is actually really terrible for our ecosystem. This is really terrible for these assets we hold. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. Um, And, you know, it it creates these really interesting questions that we have to ask ourselves, too, as creators and purveyors of the technology. You know, a lot of people in the crypto space are in it because it promises freedom and empowering the individual and all of these kind of great libertarian ideals or, you know, whatever you subscribe to. I think that a lot of people agree in the crypto world that wouldn't it be awesome if we saw more of this of like the Venezuelan people using crypto for their own benefit uh, in this kind of mismanaged government, mismanaged economy. But very seldom do we ask ourselves, wait a second, what if what if the government uses this? Like we don't get to choose who uses it and how they use it, whether they use it for what we would deem to be good for evil, whatever. And I think that this is a great example. And this is why I paid such close attention when the Petro was happening, because this is a real kind of black mirror episode of a use case is uh, an authoritarian government using crypto as an attempt at least to get around international sanctions and raise funding so that they can perpetuate their deeply problematic regime. And so that to me was just, for me as well, it highlighted when we start talking about, you know, so far Bitcoin adoption has been fairly small in most markets. You know, it's less than 1% of people, not even a half percent of the population that's been exposed to or has exposure to digital currencies. But when we start talking about people adopting these things at scale, when we start talking about the next inflection point and the one after that and the one after that, where we see parabolic growth, that to me starts to really challenge um, the role of governments. And I think there is some interesting commentary about this. Um, I myself have spent some time with some central banks. I know you have as well, and others in the community have have as well. And I think for the most part, um, central banks and monetary authorities kind of look at crypto, and they don't view it as a threat at all. My question really is, when a regime, when a government, um, when the powers that be start to view this as a threat, what happens? Because we, as a group of people who support and enable this monetary system to exist, we don't have guns. We don't have weapons. We don't, we don't 
have the resources, um, financial resources, military resources, strategic resources, relationships that the powers that be have. So Venezuela to me is just interesting because yes, I can see so many ways in which cryptocurrency can be helpful and can be useful to people there who are looking for anything but the Bolivar or the Petro. But I also see a world where if that is successful, it could actually be very risky for the network. Exactly. Yeah. And so with with the time we have left, I want to switch gears one more time and discuss a little bit about not just government challenges to it, not just, um, you know, the kind of... Uh, human challenges to this that we've discussed already, but also address some of the infrastructure layer here. So Meltem, I know you've done a ton of work around Gotenna and you've even organized meetups, you know, creating mesh networks within New York City. I would love for you to share a little bit about that and and also some of your thoughts around the role that infrastructure has to play in these types of environments and situations. Absolutely. So we've we've had this conversation around the relationship between infrastructure, application services, but also the underlying protocols and the way that consensus is reached and what that means in terms of energy consumption. You wrote a great piece on, you know, um, trust and um, the idea that, you know, energy being changed from one form into another, trust is is one of the key aspects there. Um, our friend Dan Held's written a little bit about thermoeconomics. I myself have been delving into the topic. Actually, right now, I'm wearing my shirt that I made that says uh, Bitcoin secured by the laws of the universe, which I'm very fond of. <laughs> Again, um, you know, there are laws about the universe. There's not an infinite amount of energy. Um, energy is transformed from one form into another. And in, in Bitcoin, we are taking electricity and we're using it to do computation and transforming it into monetary value. Um, and so to me, what's interesting to think about, so mesh networks at their core sound really sexy and exciting. Um, I, after reading a number of different posts that people wrote about the Samurai TX Tena integration, TX Tena is an app that's part of um, the GoTenna ecosystem that allows you to push Bitcoin transactions to the network. A bunch of folks in New York got together, this meetup we organized, and we actually tried pushing Bitcoin transactions to the network using these devices. And what we found is like, number one, there's all sorts of UX issues about trying to pair with your device. Um, there's a lot of competing signal for bandwidth. Then when you actually start trying to send transactions, there's a lot of issues with the way the app's constructed, the fact that your unsent transaction <laughs> doesn't go back into your wallet. So I was trying to send Bitcoin to everyone in the room. <laughs> so uh, I like had no idea where my Bitcoin was. I think I had $100 Bitcoin in my wallet. And then all 100 of it disappeared because you can only push the transaction once because you're not constantly updating and refreshing. There, there were just all of these really fundamental issues of how it works. It's very clunky. So to me, all of these things sound good and they sound exciting. But the reality is, is that building networks is really complex. It's really difficult. I am by no means an expert on distributed networks or building distributed networks at scale. There are plenty of people who are better equipped to speak about that than I am. But having tried to use some of the options that are out there in the market today, um, they're not that great. 
Now, in Venezuela, what I have been looking at is there's this service called Tripial, who uh, have created these nodes. And what they give people is um, the ability to connect nodes and set up meshes. And so that to me is really interesting. Um, in New York, there are two meshes. There are people on the Gotenna mesh. And there's also um, NYC Mesh. There are different Mesh communities and they have their own networks. Um, that All of the apps and services I've used around Mesh in New York um, actually don't obfuscate your identity. One of the apps actually leaked my phone number. So luckily I used oh a, a burner phone I had bought. You know, being crypto, I would never use my phone phone, um, but I used a burner. And so luckily I hadn't put anything else on that phone, but it did leak my phone number. So then I had to shred that phone because it was useless, basically. So there's just all Bonson, these- You just people. broke up. Can you just repeat the last like 10 seconds? Yep. Um, so I, you know, I used this burner phone, luckily. And I, when I, once I figured out that my number had been leaked and had been revealed to people on the network, um, I had to shred that, that phone. But when I started thinking about the idea of building mesh in a place like Venezuela, say, for example, the situation in the coming months gets to a point where basic infrastructure can't be maintained. Or I think if you just look outside of just Caracas, there are probably a lot of people who are in places where they don't have access to power, who don't have access to, to internet, how are you going to run a mesh without access to power, right? Uh, <laughs> it is, there are just a lot of fundamental questions that need to be answered. And I think this also plays into some of the doomsday scenarios that people talk about. Well, how are you going to use Bitcoin during the apocalypse? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I just want to call attention here to something that we always talk about is censorship resistance in cryptocurrency. Well, it's all well and good for the network to be censorship resistant, for the actual, you know, say Bitcoin network to feel like that's censorship resistant. But what about the actual internet infrastructure that you're using to run it? You know, it, in order to access Bitcoin in Venezuela, you need to be using something like local Bitcoins or one of these other apps and projects that I mentioned. Well, hey, guess what? It's it's the flip of a switch for the government to censor those websites, right? And so suddenly, you know, you're... Or to turn off the power. If 5% of the population, 10% suddenly want to use Bitcoin, turn off the power. Good luck, everyone. You can't charge your phones. You have nothing. But right. I even think about the aspect of privacy. When I first used Bitcoin, I had to learn how to set up a Tor node and do all of these things. Um, one of the important things that I think is playing out in the privacy arena, and um, I love what Ricardo Spagni from Monero, i.e. Fluffy Pony, says, privacy is a fundamental human right. We have the right to join networks or the right to be forgotten. Um, and what I think is really scary is if you're a known person who holds Bitcoin, if you're a known person who interacts with Bitcoin, if your IP address is tied to Bitcoin, all of a sudden the government decides they don't like this Bitcoin thing and what's happening with it, think about all of the risk that exposes you to. So I've in recent months through watching things unfold in other places have just started to become so much more aware of just how fragile everything we're building is because at the end of the day everything we're doing is dependent on infrastructure that is owned and run by other people who when the time comes likely will not be supportive of the goals of this particular community that's right and 
you know, so here I just kind of want to take a step back. We're, we're bumping up on time, but I just want to highlight some of the lessons because everything we've just talked about, hopefully, you know, listeners, uh, you know, you, me, whatever, we've all learned something about Venezuela in this episode and this week, but it's not just about Venezuela that we're talking about. And to me, some of the big lessons, and Meltem, obviously, please chime in with yours here too, is one is decentralization is complicated. It's not as simple as talking about, you know, oh, who's validating the network? You have to look at infrastructure. You have to look at all of these other things. Lesson number two, we don't get to choose who uses the tools that we build and how they get used. It might be used by people as they're fighting for their freedom, or it might be used by governments and oppressors. So that to me is is what makes this all so fascinating and what makes this all so important to, to look at and examine. I think the other piece we can't forget is these are things we have to start thinking about Now, when we talk about these important inflection points, we are still at the very earliest baby stages of crypto. While to people in the crypto sphere and probably people listening to this podcast, you've likely gotten indoctrinated into some of the uh, underpinnings and philosophical beliefs um, that many people in the crypto community share. But I think we have to realize there's a whole big world out there of people who don't share the same views um, and of people who don't believe in the things that some of us believe in and in people who may actually find some of these things so threatening to their belief system, so threatening to the existing power structures, so threatening to their concept of self that they will do anything to prevent this from happening. And that to me um, was something that was really apparent when the block size wars were raging, when the Bitcoin community was at odds with one another. And this is, you know, I myself struggle with this sometimes. I see some things happening in certain crypto communities and I'm like, oh, why? But at the end of the day, we're not fighting one another. Um, we are all working together to enable something. And we're going to be fighting so many other people. This is where I think um, identifying real use, real cases where people are using cryptocurrency in ways to maintain their individual wealth, um, to provide them with access to services and the ability to save, um, to provide them with free speech, right? Um, Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation, I think has done a lot of good by talking about Bitcoin as a tool for preservation of free speech. And so all of these, all of these things um, are so important in bringing us together and helping us realize that the battles that we need to fight are coming. They're really complex issues. They're not just about technology. They're about ethics. They're about soci- sociology. They're about economics. They're about fundamental beliefs that people have about equality. They're about beliefs that we have about what constitutes fundamental human rights. And these are going to be very, very difficult hard fought, very drawn out battles that are fought on many, many different fronts. And so it's, to me, it's very exciting to be thinking about these to be two, three steps ahead of where the general crypto community is, because these are the things that are actually going to make the difference. 
Great. And with that, we'll wrap it up here. I think probably, again, our most optimistic episode in a while, but certainly with some some dark horses still still lurking in here. And if you want to learn more about Venezuela, um, you know, there are a bunch of resources on my Twitter. Other people I would recommend following. You mentioned Alex Gladstein, uh, the RTM Project, Crypto Conserje, again, um, BTC Ven. And there are lots of others. Eduardo, uh, who goes under the handle of at Codiox, C-O-D-O-X, has lived this crisis. He's someone who lived on Bitcoin while in Venezuela and just recently escaped the country with his private keys in his head. Uh, lots of really inspiring stories there. So by all means, I will put them in our resources page just to make it easy for folks. I think you could probably curate a tome of literature on this topic and analogous topics. Jill, I'm really looking forward to talking again next week, seeing what's evolved here. And again, I'm really excited to see what you do with Good Money Initiative. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Take care. Hi, everyone. Meltem and Jill here. To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning, and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.